0: You're tuned in to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where I speak with graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by ecologist Dave Armitage from the Department of Integrated Biology. Uh, welcome.
1: Hello. How are you?
0: I'm very good. Thank you. Thank you for joining us here. No problem. Uh, so ecologists, is that just like you care about the world or do you have something specific you care about?
1: Uh, yeah, so when I, when I introduce myself on airplanes, I usually introduce myself not as an ecologist because uh, people generally associate uh, the career of ecologist with uh, one who studies recycling or uh, the deep ecology movement of transcendental meditation and whatnot. So I usually introduce myself as a microbiologist on airplanes. And then uh, they
0: have no idea what you do or?
1: Well no, then I get uh I get a lot of other interesting questions mostly about you know, the quality of their bowel movements and so forth.
0: Oh so they're they're thinking like macrobiotics or uh Yeah, probiotics, m- or what they can got eat. Microbiomes yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so that's not what you see. you don't study poop, do you?
1: Uh well, in a sense I do. I study uh plant feces. Yeah.
0: Okay. okay, that's definitely a phrase I've never heard before. So I think you'll have to walk us through that just a little bit.
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh, my research is uh, at Berkeley, anyways, is primarily focused on uh, the ecology of carnivorous plants, uh, specifically these really crazy plants. I would argue that they're the strangest plants on earth. Uh, they're called pitcher plants. And uh, what they do is they've evolved to attract trap and digest insects and some other things uh, as prey so uh, they've evolved to do this because they can then exploit these habitats that don't have that that really aren't suitable for plants to typically live in places with without many nutrients in the soil things like that
0: so these are like the plants you might have seen in like a gift shop, right? They they actually look like a pitcher. Like they have this rounded bottom so things can just fall right in there and be trapped.
1: Yeah, yeah. They they typically look like sort of conical, uh, water-filled leaves. Uh, you can find them. <clears throat> they sell them at places like Home Depot. Uh, you can basically find them anywhere. They, you can also find things like Venus fly traps.
0: So is this rare, this ability to to eat insects? I mean... I guess you don't really think about plants eating creatures, so it must be a little rare.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, it's it's relatively rare within you know plants overall. I'd say there's about I, I could be completely wrong on this, but I'd say over two hundred species that actively are consuming things, uh, trapping and consuming prey items. Not all insects, but uh, primarily insects and invertebrates.
0: Invertebrates. So what's the biggest thing a plant can eat? <clears throat>
1: The biggest thing a plant can eat. uh, There's, there's all these old wives' tales of things like uh, rats being falling into these pitcher traps and drowning and getting digested. Uh, I've never personally witnessed it, but um, I think that it could happen. And some of the larger pitcher plants, in places like Malaysia, the pitchers can hold upwards of uh, a liter of water. So, I could see so pretty big. Yeah, so I could see larger mammals falling in and drowning in those things.
0: So, okay, Malaysia, that, you know, this is a pretty exotic plant. I guess I could expect to find it there. Where else would you find these exotic carnivorous plants?
1: Oh, yeah. So pitcher plants specifically, um, there's three families, so three large groups of these plants that have evolved independently to have these water-filled prey-trapping pitchers. The largest group, uh, Nepenthes, they uh, primarily live in um, Indonesia, Malaysia, a few in Madagascar, um,
0: I'm sensing an island theme.
1: Yeah, yeah. Mostly mostly living on islands, um, but not necessarily. I mean, peninsular Malaysia has quite a few species. And then there's one species, cephalotus, that lives in Australia. Uh, and that's a really weird one. It's the only member of its family, uh, so it's kind of a unique plant. And then um, there's a few, I forget exactly how many species, um, of Saracenia, which are the North American pitcher plants. And they primarily live in the, uh, along the Atlantic Coastal Plain, so basically anywhere between uh, North Carolina, mostly in the Florida Panhandle. I think the Florida Panhandle has the most species in North America. And then they go over to Texas, and there's, there's one species of pitcher plant called the purple pitcher plant that is by far the most common, and it, it exists all over the eastern United States, all over Canada, up into the Northwest Territories in Canada. It's pretty far north few in South America, and the South American ones are really cool because they live, if you've ever seen the movie Up, they go, they take the balloon ride to the top of this flat topped mountain called a tepui, Mm -hmm. which uh, these are these flat topped mountains uh, in the Guiana Shield, which they're really unique geological formations. And they're these mountains that are completely flat on the top and just have this kind of rocky uh, moon-like structure to them where... There's there's really no soil on top of these things, and uh, it's just covered with all these interesting species of carnivorous plants. So there's probably about 13 species of pitcher plants down there, and each species is, is unique to one or a few of these uh, flat-topped mountains. And then uh, the one that I studied, Darlingtonia, um, maybe the coolest scientific name, Darlingtonia, it's yeah. darling plant. Yeah. Those live in uh, those are also really unique in that they are the only pitcher plant found in the Western United States. And they live in uh, the Sierra Nevada mountains up into the uh, sort of the coastal range in Oregon down to the coast in Oregon, um, but they have a very restricted range in California and Oregon
0: here in California. so I mean, you started off with all these what we would consider to be pretty exotic tropical places, even Indonesia, even Australia, South America. What do all those places and like the Sierras or the the eastern United States, what do they have in common?
1: Yeah, uh, that's a really good question. Uh, People are still trying to answer precisely why pitcher plants occur where they do. I think that the general sentiment is that carnivorous plants in general, and pitcher plants specifically, are growing in places that are nutrient-limited. So you can imagine places without much soil. A lot of the pitcher plants live in very waterlogged places, at least the North American and South American pitcher plants are generally found around water. They're often found in what are called serpentine habitats. So uh, Darlingtonia, the species that I work on, is found associated with these rock formations that contain um, high concentration of heavy metals, which uh, makes it difficult for plants to live. Um, and there's this whole flora that's specifically um, evolved to live on these uh, serpentine rocks that are, derived from, uh, that are originally derived from the ocean. And yeah, these plants are just uh, capable of tolerating that.
0: Well, okay. So pretty interesting group you're working on. How, can you tell us how you got interested in carnivorous plants? Was it from the beginning you saw one eat like a giant spider and you were like, oh man, this is so heavy.
1: Uh, No, actually, I was never really interested in plants in general growing up. You know how when you grow up, you go through these phases where at least- young boys go through the trucks phase, you know, construction equipment, then the dinosaurs phase and then the well then the phases sort of diverge, but I went through a I think I went through a reptiles phase, an insects phase, uh, and whatever phase you get stuck on is basically the one that, you know, you do as a career or if you're emotionally mature then you just kind of go off and do something else. So I got stuck on the reptiles phase uh, for a very long time and I always thought that I wanted to be a herpetologist. And we've had a few of those yeah, on the yeah, show here. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you understand the mentality of the herpetologist in that it's just a, it's just an obsession. It's just an obsession. And so, yeah, throughout uh, my youth, I just kind of hung out in the woods, catching snakes and bringing them home and stuff. And then I went off to college and I still wanted to be a herpetologist. So uh, I volunteered in the museum at the university of Michigan, and that, that was really cool in the uh, reptiles uh, division of that museum. So I got to skin a lot of cobras and uh, see all these snakes and lizards and turtles and stuff that I'd never seen before. Uh, so that was really cool. Um, and then I got my first job doing research. So previous to that, I had just done, you know, regular college jobs. I worked in a bookstore. I mowed lawns, that sort of thing. Um, but then the guy that i worked for told me oh you you should start applying for field jobs to kind of um you know get experience if you want to do this full time so my first field job was awesome it was catching rattlesnakes at, at this park in michigan and in michigan they have these endangered rattlesnakes called massasauga rattlesnakes so uh, i basically spent the entire summer uh, out in the woods getting bitten by mosquitoes and trying to find these snakes which are super cryptic so they're Almost impossible to spot, so I caught maybe <laughs> three or four of them throughout the summer.
0: How do you catch a rattlesnake? That <laughs> sounds like dangerous business.
1: Oh, no, usually, uh, despite what you may have seen on the crocodile hunter, um, you generally have a big hook with you that you just pick it up with and throw it into a pillowcase. But we were doing uh, radio telemetry on them, so what that entails is you catch a rattlesnake, and our objective was to figure out uh, you know, where they were moving throughout the day, whether or not there were... Differences in movement between male and female snakes, uh, et cetera. This is all for conservation purposes to figure out, you know, what sort of habitat these snakes need to survive in. So, um, yeah, we would catch these snakes, bring them back to the lab, and then the uh, professor in charge of the project would anesthetize them and implant this radio transmitter in them, sew the snake back up, and then we would release it. And then for the rest of the summer, uh, I basically was just chasing these snakes around uh, by tracking the radio signal that they were emitting. And when we'd find them, we'd record what sort of habitat they were found in. Uh, So, yeah, that was a great, great first uh, introduction to scientific research. It was cool.
0: Well, something must have happened somewhere along the way because I haven't seen you with any rattlesnakes recently.
1: Yeah, so um, during the rattlesnake project, I remember seeing my first pitcher plant in the field. I tracked a rattlesnake through this uh, bog, and I found uh, uh, the purple pitcher plant out there, and I thought it was really cool, but I really didn't think much of it after that, and I really didn't think about it for years to come. So then after doing a bunch of other sort of random field jobs, I decided, uh, why not try to go to graduate school for biology, just to see if I liked it enough to stick with it. I should say I did this as a master's degree because I wasn't exactly sure whether or not I wanted to do this full-time. Are we ever <laughs> yeah, sure? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I, I mean, I, I had other interests. I still have other interests. But, you know, this this was my main interest at the time. So I found this job opening at the University of Florida, which was a uh, it was a funded master. So uh, my advisor, Holly Ober, great scientist, she uh, paid me to come down there to work on this project. Looking at uh, the responses of bats to prescribed fire in Florida, so what's pres- a,
0: yeah, sorry, yeah. what's prescribed <laughs> yeah. fire?
1: So prescribed fire is um, what's also called a controlled burn where land managers uh, to either promote certain species to grow certain species of plants and trees to grow on their land. they'll basically burn it themselves in order to um, do it in a controlled fashion rather than allow just a wildfire to rip through their property. And a lot of the habitat down in Florida, it's called a uh, longleaf pine habitat, and it's uh, it's a really fire-dependent ecosystem. So everything everything that grows in this habitat requires maybe semi-decadal fires uh, in order to, you know, encourage this regrowth and resprouting of, of these longleaf pine trees and uh, what are called wiregrass. And it's a really unique uh, ecosystem in that it contains uh, just a ton of species of Birds, reptiles, plants, amphibians that you won't find anywhere else in the country outside of this area. And it's also highly threatened. So uh, I believe there's only 3% of the original uh, stand of this longleaf pine sandhills habitat left uh, in the United States from historic levels. So it's considered an endangered ecosystem. And so my goal uh, was to go there and figure out what was going on when they were burning this habitat uh, with the bat populations, because nobody had ever looked at that before.
0: So bats seem like a totally different direction. I mean, they're mammals, after all. we're getting
1: closer to pitcher plants, though, because the bats were eating insects.
0: Oh, okay, I see it. Yeah, I see it. Did you actually look at bat activity then, or how how did you study the bats in that case?
1: Yeah, so we had these nifty devices called bat detectors, which... um, They kind of look like, they almost look like the little traps that the Ghostbusters use to Mm -hmm. trap Slimer in. They roll across the floor. Uh, So I had a bunch of these things, and they basically consist of an ultrasonic microphone. So a microphone that can pick up sound waves that are higher than uh, the human ear can hear. You think about bats using echolocation, they're also echolocating at the frequencies that these microphones are picking up. So the microphones record the bat calls throughout the night. And then I would go back out there in a the day, collect these things, and what it allowed me to do was identify what bats were flying around based on the calls that the detectors were recording that night. And we were doing this to compare the effects of prescribed fire frequency on different species of bats and their use of the uh, understory of the forest. Uh, and our hypothesis was that because if you leave a forest unburned for more than 10 years, uh, you're going to get a lot of tall shrubby growth, oak trees, and um, just other tall shrubs that prohibit bats from actually entering the lower areas of this uh, forest canopy and effectively feeding on insects and stuff. So by making these prescribed fires occur, you're clearing out that understory and sort of simplifying the physical complexity of the habitat and allowing bats that would normally only be flying above the tree line, now they can enter below the tree line and fly around and catch insects and stuff.
0: Yeah. Did you find any do you find anything good?
1: Yeah, yeah. So we found that prescribed fire is indeed promoting bat use uh underneath the canopy for certain species of bats, these larger bats that don't really have the physical ability to fly under the canopy under normal circumstances. And a lot of these bats are um also some of the rarer bats that you find in Florida. So it was kind of cool to you know write write this paper and be able to you know make recommendations to land managers on how to effectively use fire to promote promote bat activity uh, along with all sorts of other you know, you, you know bat activity is just one aspect of what you're trying to conserve when you're conserving longleaf pine habitat but it was cool to actually be able to sort of make that connection with these land managers and have them take my data and use it to do something in the real world yeah, so that was cool applicable yeah
0: so why would someone want to promote bat diversity or having bats on their property
1: oh yeah well i mean bats are really cool in general i shouldn't say this is kind of a myth that bats do eliminate pest insects they really don't make a dent in the pest insect population but in general bats do provide you know an ecosystem service and that they are going around and, you know, performing these functions that no other animal, no other nocturnal animals are providing. So I think that there's uh, an argument to be made for preserving diversity per se without, you know, having some monetary value attached to that diversity. And a lot of ecological research that's going on now actually sort of stresses uh, The inherent value of biodiversity in facilitating the functions of whole ecosystems. So it's based on the notion that uh, just the more species, the more interactions, the more complex the food web you have, the less perturbed the food web uh, that you have in your ecosystem, um, the more efficiently the ecosystem is going to function in terms of things that really impact uh, our lives, like Nutrient cycling, uh, oxygen production by all the trees, things like carbon sequestration by the plants, nitrogen production, nitrogen mineralization. These are all processes that are happening at a level above what individual animals are doing, but individual animals and plants, I should say. But together, you know, in this complex web, this is what is actually causing these really large scale global processes to occur.
0: Also, I heard that bats are really important for pollinating the agave cactus which makes tequila
1: oh yeah yeah I... <laughs> that's monetary but <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: but we want our tequila there's right?
1: yeah there's quite a few pollinating bats uh just not in florida really fair enough
0: uh, okay if you're just tuning in you're listening to the graduates here on CalEx. my name is tesla munson and today i'm joined by ecologist dave armitage so take us through the next steps you went okay you got snakes mm-hmm. bats Bats eat and eat the insects just like the plants, yeah, but yeah. how'd you make that transition?
1: Okay, so I mean, if you remember what I was just talking about with the inherent importance of biodiversity, when I was doing my master's degree, I was taking all these classes on ecology and ecological theory, and I decided that I wanted to find a system that was tractable to test some of these ecological theories, um, looking at the importance of biodiversity per se and looking at how these ecological interactions are affecting processes occurring at larger ecological scales so things like nutrient cycling for instance so i at the time i think i was reading the book the hot zone by richard preston the book about ebola Mm -hmm. and uh, i think at the end of that book or maybe it was in some of my supplemental reading for that book then you know wikipedia I found out about this burgeoning field called microbial ecology, which kind of is a multifaceted... It's a multifaceted field within ecology. Um, On one hand, a lot of people use microbes such as bacteria and fungi to to sort of test these ecological theories, these ecological and evolutionary theories. And the reason for that is, first of all, they're very simple organisms that uh, have a very rapid generation time. So you can imagine how... I wouldn't say it's easy, but tractable it is to make these large scale replicated experiments looking at how these things evolve under different ecological contexts and how they behave under different ecological contexts, all within the space of like a lab bench. So it's easy to make these large scale experiments possible. And I think microbes are really one of the only options to do that and to have it stay semi-realistic, to actually keep that within a biological system rather than just doing it on a, using computer simulations, for instance.
0: So when you say microbes, what, like, what part of the plant are we talking about? Or how is this related to the plant?
1: Yeah, yeah. So about to tie it all together. Okay. So when I got to Berkeley, I was talking to my advisor, Wayne Sousa, about what I could possibly, you know, use as a tractable study system to assess some of these questions that I'm interested in bridging ecological scales. And he suggested, I think that actually I mentioned that I had just read uh, some studies or was reading some studies where scientists had been using pitcher plants to do this. Because if you think about what a pitcher plant is, it's a tiny pool of water or liquid. We call it liquor actually, but it tastes nothing like liquor. Uh, (laughs) It's all these isolated, um, replicated pools that are naturally occurring. So they're not assembled in a lab. They've co-evolved with the plant. And inside of these pools of water are um, pretty high diversity of different critters. So you've got, you've got bacteria and fungi, first of all, at the, in this pool of water that functions to sort of break down all the prey items. It, it's, it's almost analogous to our digestive system albeit without an anus. So it's just a pool of water. But you
0: said there was plant poop.
1: (laughs) I mean, it's technically, yeah, it's technically (laughs) plant poop. When you look at it and smell it, it smells uh, just as bad. Yeah, the bacteria and the fungi are breaking down the insects in part for this plant and recycling a lot of those nutrients back into the plant tissue. So what you can do is use this pitcher plant as sort of a micro ecosystem in which to experimentally test a lot of cool theories and it's also completely replicable because you have all these individual pitchers that presumably i mean they contain similar species almost the same species throughout and so you can go out and perform sadistic experiments on the denizens of these plants i'll talk a little bit more about the critters that live in there so we have in the pitcher plant darlingtonia that i work on there's um, a midge species, which is kind of like a, it's like a non-biting mosquito, which lays its eggs and its larvae develop only in this pitcher. It's the only, the only place you can find this species of insect is associated with these pitchers. So it's, it's co-evolved to kind of lay its eggs in there and it's protected. And then the eggs hatch and the larvae go out and chew on all the insects that are trapped by this thing. And then they hatch out, fly into the next pitcher, lay their eggs and then die. So that's their life cycle, completely associated with the pitchers. There's also a mite, a species of mite, that's also, you can only find them in this single species of pitcher. And that's sort of the general rule. I mean, all these pitcher species, when you look in them, you're finding uh, species of insects, species of uh, arachnids, maybe bacteria, although defining a bacterial species is difficult. But um, you're finding all these close associates that, live inside of the pitcher plant and perform functions that are crucial to the survival of the plant itself so you can kind of think of this simplified food web as a micro ecosystem and what i do is i go into these ecosystems and just do simple experiments where i'll maybe perturb the food web a little bit to see what happens to things like the rates of nitrogen and carbon cycling for instance
0: so when you, when you say that these species co-evolve with the plant, I guess that means that the the plant's getting something out of it because they're performing vital functions for the plant. And then the insect is also getting something out of it too, right? Because it's...
1: Yeah, cleaning. exactly. I so, mean, they're getting protection. They're getting sustenance. The plant is attracting other prey items that they can feed on. And there's all sorts of other really crazy, uh, what we call them mutualisms uh, in ecology, which is just a, it's the idea that there's a beneficial transaction going on between the two parties involved I mean I can give you some crazy examples from uh, Borneo there's a uh, species of pitcher plant that looks like a toilet and functions like a toilet because there are tree shrews which are just these little critters that uh, go and defecate and urinate in the pitchers and feces and urine are full of nitrogen and that's the currency that the plant wants from these things so they're using those as a latrine. There's also an example, a uh, pretty new example, of a pitcher plant in Borneo. And this is, this is perfect. When this was discovered, everybody just flooded me with emails because it combines uh, my two scientific interests. Uh, a bat species that lives inside of a pitcher um, and sort of gets protection from living in there during the day when it's roosting. And the bat defecates in the pitcher and then flies out, and the pitcher has basically ceased expressing the traits uh, required for prey trapping. So it's not trapping prey anymore because it knows that the bat is going to go out, catch a bunch of insects, eat the insects, digest them, and then defecate them out into the plant, and the plant will just already have taken care of it all.
0: So onto a new path of possible evolution, I guess.
1: (laughs) Who knows? It's really interesting.
0: Well, have you—so— in your own research, do you have any, like, big bullet points, big reveals that you've come up with in your time here? Oh, still, my... still working <clears throat> it out? It's, it's okay. Yeah.
1: I mean, so I am sort of a scientific generalist when it comes to the questions I study. So i say I have three main uh, sort of research interests right now. The first one is primarily in the lab, and that, that involves taking bacteria out of pitcher plants, out of Darlingtonia specifically, different species of bacteria, strains of bacteria, putting them together in test tubes and seeing, first of all, how, whether or not bacteria compete with one another. Uh, that's a critical question, whether or not bacteria that are living together are doing so in harmony or in antagonism. If you go out in nature and look, generally you will see things um, either competing very diffusely, like not very strongly. Or they are facilitating one another, so they're helping one another out in some some way. With bacteria, it's the same question, and it's an important question because how the nature of bacterial interactions uh, with one another uh, that can tell us a lot about what's going on in our own bodies because we are you know ninety five percent other DNA, bacteria mostly. So um, I think understanding the nature of uh, these ecological transactions among among uh, microbes in these plants, doing similar functions, digesting things for the host plant, we can translate some of those into uh, what we know about our own bodies and um, potentially what we know about our you know human health and the role of microbes in human health. And then just generally, it's you know of interest ecologically because nobody really knows uh, what's going on with bacteria. There's not too much information known about what's going on with bacteria. Um, And then second, uh, I'm just interested in uh, why pitcher plants are doing what they're doing. So uh, why do they look so crazy? Why do they have all these crazy appendages and um, little holes in them and all sorts of stuff? If you look at these plants, they look totally outrageous. And a lot of people, historically, people have been studying pitcher plants ever since the days of Darwin. And Darwin was super interested in, uh, in carnivorous plants. And... Uh, There's been a lot of speculation on the roles of certain traits of these leaves as adaptations to catching insects. And uh, what I'm basically trying to do is determine whether or not those speculations are actually true. So I'm going out in the field and either painting these plants in the fields to remove coloration or going out and removing pieces of these leaves, and then just watching what happens. Are their efficiencies of prey capture going to decrease when you you know, take off this appendage containing you know nectar, or are they not? So it's uh, basically just a question of whether or not there's an evolutionary adaptive explanation for these strange features found on all these plants. That's what I'm interested in there. And then finally, um, I'm interested in sort of the natural dynamics of the pitcher plant microbial community. So to do that, I what I do is I go out in the fields and I work out in the Sierra Nevada mountains in this beautiful place called Butterfly Valley. It's the Butterfly Valley Botanical Area, if you ever get a chance to visit. Yeah, so I go out there and I follow these leaves over their two-year lifespan to assess um, whether or not there are these predictable patterns of uh turnover and change in the communities of the microbes that live in these plants and in the uh, arthropods and generally within the whole food web that resides in these plants and how those changes then can be used to predict changes in uh, the efficiency of nutrient cycling so the mineralization of carbon so how does how does a change in the identities of species in these plants affect things like carbon dynamics in the plant or things like nitrogen dynamics in the plants. So it's trying to link these processes occurring at the population level so that the individual the level of individual organisms to these emergent properties of the ecosystem that you know you could then use to understand perhaps the role of microbes uh, at even larger scales in things like I don't know agricultural systems Um, where microbes are really important for doing, you know, similar nitrogen transformations and stuff.
0: Well, sounds good to me. Believe it or not, we're like out of time. This Hmm. 30 minutes have just sped by. But uh, I should give you a chance. Do you have any last words for the audience, anything you really wanted to say you didn't get a chance?
1: Oh, uh, last words. Let's see. I think something I'd like to say to the audience, uh, somehow I doubt that many of these people are listening to this show, though, but... To uh, all those who don't really um, don't really find utility in the funding of basic science, I think that's a poor stance to take. And I think that although you really can't judge the inherent practical value of basic science when you're going through grant reviews, um, I think that they're I think that it's still uh, quite a useful venture. And I think that um, you know these new propositions to sort of change uh, how how federal funding to science is allocated, uh, I think that's going down a terrible path. And allowing Congress to decide what science gets funded and what is the most important aspects of science to fund is just an awful idea. I think the scientists should be deciding what the most important aspects of science to fund are.
0: Why Why do you think it's so bad if Congress does it for us?
1: Oh, well, because, um, yeah, for instance, I, I think that the uh, the new policies that are being proposed sort of put a primacy on science that is trying to increase. Uh, well, first of all, it's trying to increase just uh, the stature of the United States only. So, science that's funded by the U.S.'s National Science Foundation that is occurring in places like um, outside of the United States, um, those kind of those kind of projects wouldn't be funded anymore. So, the classic example, you know, are these studies of Neanderthals in in france where the nsf is funding people to go and dig up fossil hominids or you know fossil dinosaurs in china or or whatever and those fossils stay in those host countries and so you know these congressmen are you know angry that uh that they're really the u.s really isn't getting much out of that transaction and most of most of that money and effort is being wasted on you know other countries and making other countries more prestigious. uh...
0: But I mean, yeah, science, at least if you ask most scientists, science is about advancing knowledge. And if you wanted to make it applicable, sure, then like humankind, but definitely not about advancing a single area of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, it's crazy. But I mean, what can you really say to people? I was just having this conversation with my dad. I mean, and he's a pretty open-minded guy. But what do you say to people to make them value something that they're maybe not interested in or that they're never going to interact with?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's really difficult, especially since this mandate uh, not only calls for a cessation of international expenditures on science, but also... Um, an increased training in STEM uh, undergrads and graduate students and high school students. So it's, it's, it's kind of funny in that on one hand, they want to significantly decrease the amount of money that's spent on science education. But at the same time, the stated goal of these things is to actually increase the number of basic scientists in the United States.
0: And which we all know is like not... A great idea, considering the amount of money that they have to pay us is already <laughs> so low.
1: Yeah, that's true too. But in general, I mean, a lot of a lot of time when I'm arguing, you know, arguing with people on the internet uh, about this sort of thing, you know, you, you you have to cite these things where basic science begets, you know, technology that is essential to our lives. Like, I mean, microwaves and the internet; those are always the classic examples. But I think that you know, things that don't necessarily have uh, practical applications. That sort of knowledge is still essential for us to, uh, even as a liberal art, to sort of participate, you know, be active, thoughtful participants in in a a democracy and in a civil society. I mean, I think that the inherent value is there in just creating a society that functions.
0: And with that, I think we're going to sign off here on The Graduates. My name's Tesla Munson. You've been listening to The Graduates here on CalEx. Center the interview talk show where I speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world, hopefully still funded around the world because, uh, yeah, the work needs to be done everywhere. And today I've been speaking with ecologist or microbiologist Dave Armitage. He prefers ecologists though. Yeah, so yeah. from the Department of Integrative Biology here on campus. He's been telling us about his work with snakes and bats and pitcher plants and why we should all just care about diversity and science and the coolness that is, you know, research. So thank you so much for coming on the show today, Dave. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. And it sounds like we could do a whole nother episode and and fill that one, too. So (laughs) maybe I'll contact you again in the future. Uh, But until then, you're tuned into 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley.